morning. Today's sermon is from Mark 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. You may be seated. Thanks, Will. Let me just take a moment to let you know how difficult it is for a teenager to get on stage in front of a bunch of people. So just want to say that's not some small feat. So, Will, thank you for getting up and reading scripture today. To begin, I won't, y'all might not know this about me. Y'all might know this about me, but I'm a nerd. And in, in some situations, most of the time I don't like numbers, but in some situations I do like numbers. Numbers can tell us a lot about something. They might not, we don't want them to rule over us, but they can teach us a lot about where we were. There was a study done by the Southern Baptist Convention over a period of 20 years, and they looked at the number of baptisms in churches and how they went from 1997 to 2017. And then they looked at average church membership as far as who's coming to church each week. There's a graph. You want to throw that graph up there, Perry? If it's working. There we go. So this is a very interesting study. Um, you see, back in 1997, these churches, however many were surveyed, there were thousands of churches surveyed, uh, you saw their average attendance each week throughout all these churches was about 6 million people. And in a period of 20 years, these churches reported total baptizing 7 million people. Praise the Lord, that's awesome. But if you look at this graph, that dotted line, if you had every single person in the church stay, and that dotted line is the number of 7 million baptisms in that time period. The number reported as far as attending in 2016, 2017 should be closer to 13 million. But if you look at the bottom two lines, you see that it actually shrunk by about 14,000 over a period of 20 years. So what these numbers show us, while baptisms were great over this period of time, church attendance dropped. So somehow, with this total of numbers, uh, the Southern Baptist Church and also other churches, we, we see this trend, somehow lost 7 million people. And that is a very interesting statistic. 7 million people. Now I get it with, you know, time going on, church members dying, passing away, maybe moving. I get it. So we'll take 2 million out of that. 5 million people. Where did they go? read a book recently by John Dickerson, and it's called The Great Evangelical Recession. And the subtitle probably would mean more to you. It says, six factors that will crash the American church and how to prepare for them. So throughout his book, he goes through all these different factors. I'm not going to bore you with all of them, but a lot of the, the highlights were um, the decrease in church membership, um, the facts that on average, 70% of our teenagers who grew up in church, once they uh, graduate and go to college, will never return to church. 
how giving to church has decreased by 35%. They're looking at that going to 50% or more. All these different factors, yes, it's kind of depressing to look at them, but the whole point of this, at the end of the book, he said, how do we as the church prepare for this? We know it's coming, and I love his answer. He said, the way we prepare for this is normal Christians living the normal Christian life. And what he means by the normal Christian life is discipleship and making disciples. Understanding when Jesus called us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 to go to all the nations and make disciples, that is something that was given to all of us as Christians. Sadly, in the church today overall, we have a lot of abnormal Christians who are not living the call that God has given us. So today I want us to to look at what is the normal life for normal Christians and how do we prepare for the future church. Um, The story that we heard today from Mark 1 is when Jesus first is, is going to call his disciples and we see him go to the shore and he calls them, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. One of my favorite stories in scripture. It's so simple, but it tells us so much. So in order to see the normal life of the normal Christians, I want us to look at two different parts to this uh, story. I want us to look at the participants. Like, who are the people in this story? And then I want us to look at the process of how Jesus uses them. So let's start with the participants. We see Jesus come and call four men to follow him. Um, The first is Simon, or later Peter, Simon Peter. We know him as Peter. Um, As I told the students earlier, I heard that it said Peter has a foot-shaped mouth, which means that, you know, he's always getting himself into trouble with using his mouth. Hot-headed, you know, cut a guy's ear off, denied Jesus three times. This guy would later become the leader of the church, um, write multiple letters that we have in God's Word today, And he's the one that at Pentecost in Acts preached the gospel. And on that day, 3,000 people came to know the Lord. So that Peter, this this hot-headed person, became that man. We see his brother Andrew. And throughout Scripture, we don't know a lot about Andrew, but there's one important fact that we see over and over and over again. Andrew knows who Jesus is, and he constantly brought people to Jesus. Brought his brother Peter to Jesus, as we see in another book. He brought the little boy to Jesus who had the, the fish and the bread and said, hey, he has this. I know you're Jesus. You can do something about this. Andrew was always bringing people to Jesus. In the other boat, we see James. James would go on to be the first martyr for the Christian faith. He's the first one to die for his beliefs. And then we see John, James's brother. John was uh, self-proclaimed the um, disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, I don't think that was a prideful statement. I think that was just well known throughout all the disciples. They were probably closest. Um, And then John would go on to write, uh, other than Paul, he would write more letters that we have today than anyone else. Um, He would go on to write the Gospel of John. He would write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he would write the book of Revelation. So all these men, Jesus calls them to follow him, and we see how Jesus used these guys to change the world. But I think we have a a view of these guys that is not biblically accurate. So I want to take a moment to really understand who these guys are. So the first thing I want to see about these guys is they were hardworking, 
blue-collar workers. I don't know about you, I don't know if you like to fish, but fishing nowadays is a lot easier than it was in biblical times. They had huge heavy nets, they had to throw them over, and most nights, they didn't catch a single thing. And this was their livelihood. Catching fish, it's still hard nowadays. I'm not good at it, I don't know if you are. Someone needs to teach me how to do it better. But it was hard work then. Uh, you have other disciples that we know of. We have Matthew, who was a government employee. He was a tax collector. We have Thomas, who was probably a lawyer because he was, you know, asking Jesus questions all the time and doubting him and stuff. Don't know if he was a lawyer, but we had all these guys. They weren't the top religious officials of the day. They weren't, they didn't hold the most high esteem office. They were average Joes. They were normal people, normal hardworking people. Later on, we're going to see, why did Jesus choose them? But not only that, we see more in depth that they didn't possess any formal religious training. They possessed no formal religious training. Um, as we know, and that we'll see more in a little bit in more detail, in Jewish culture, when these Jewish boys were growing up, they all went to a certain Jewish school where they would study the word. And there's a moment in their life where they would either get accepted to be one of these top religious officials or they would get thrown out, say, sorry, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough. And if that was the case, they would go to their fallback plan, working for the family business. Fishermen, carpenters, shoemakers, whatever that was. So we know these guys did not make it to that level of education. So they had no formal religious training. In Acts chapter 4, Verse 13, very interesting scene. We see Peter and John, and they're preaching before this council of religious officials, and they're preaching the gospel, and they are very bold in proclaiming this. And this is the religious officials' reaction to that in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I would rather have no formal religious training and spend time with Jesus than have all the religious training in the world and never spent time with Jesus. I would love for people to look at me and say, that man spends time with Jesus. Do you want that about you? Do you want that said about you? That's one of the most important things that someone can say about us. Have you spent time with Jesus. So hard workers, blue-collar workers, no formal religious training. And this is very fascinating to me, is that they were young men. A lot of times, we kind of, when I was growing up, I perceived them as being these 30-something-year-old adults. Um, but most scholars believe that these disciples were probably teenagers, other than Peter, who was probably 20 at the time. If you look at Will, who read our scripture, uh, most of the disciples were probably Will's age. Um, and there's a few reasons we know this. I won't go into too much detail, but I want to give you seven reasons um, that I, I believe this about Scripture. First is the title that Jesus gives to them. He uses the, the Greek word mikros, where we get the word micro, which means little ones. And then he uses the word technions, where he calls them little children. I don't know about you, but, but what if you called a 30-year-old man a little child? I don't think that would go over well for you. So it's what he called them. Um, to their training uh, in the Hebrew, um, there's a commentary on the Hebrew Old Testament called the, the Mishnah. And 
They said they prescribed for Jewish boys at 18, they would take over the family business and run it for themselves. But in this scene, we see some of the disciples with their father, which means they weren't of age to take over the family business yet out on that fishing boat. Also in the same thing, number three is marriage. Um, it was prescribed for them to be married by 18. And Peter was the only one we know who was married. In Matthew 8, we see Jesus goes and heals his mother-in-law. So that's how another reason we know. Number four is the temple tax. This is a little obscure. But men over 20 had to give a double tax to the temple on Passover. In Matthew 17, 24, we see the story of all the disciples coming into Jerusalem for Passover. And the religious officials question Peter saying, Does your master pay the double drachma tax? And uh, Jesus said, what do you think, Peter? And Peter answered, they had this dialogue. And then, and then Jesus said, Peter, go out, go fishing, and the fish you catch, open his mouth, it'll have this coin, and you will bring it, and it will pay for you and me. Now, he didn't say you and all the disciples. He said for you and me, indicating that it was Jesus and Peter who were of age to pay this tax. Side note, I don't know about you, but I've never caught a fish that had the exact amount that I owed the IRS in its mouth. Um, that would be nice. But uh, next, uh, travel. Um, older men would typically not leave their family business to follow Jesus, and we have no reason to believe Jesus would buck the system back then. Number six is longevity. Um, we see John writes his letters, and we see he writes Revelation towards the end of the first century. And it, dude was either hundred years old, or he was probably really young when he started following Jesus. And seven, which is probably my favorite reason that I wrote down, immaturity. Constantly displaying characteristics of teenagers. I'm not saying anything bad about teenagers in here. This is just a fact. They constantly start talking about calling down fire on those who are against Jesus. They constantly questioned Jesus. They constantly argued over who was best. Once again, I don't know a 30-year-old man who would, or 30-year-old men who would get their mom to go ask Jesus if they could sit at his right hand. When you start thinking about maybe they're teenagers, then you get it. James and John's mom going to Jesus saying, where will my kids sit when you're in glory? So all this to say, you, you can agree with me that they were teenagers or not. It does not affect the integrity of God's word one bit. But I think it enhances it. God used these teenagers to change the world. Don't discount teenagers for the work they can do for the Lord. If God used these teenagers, these, these hardworking young men, to change the world, what can he do with us? The point of all this, I, I gave you a lot of facts, a lot of statistics, a lot of stuff about these guys. The point I want you to get is that these guys... There was nothing special about them. Matter of fact, they were below average if you look at their jobs and stuff. They were below average, as one of our church members pointed out to me this morning. They weren't just average men. They were below average. The only thing special about these men is the power and presence of Jesus in their lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think... I don't want people to think there's something special about me. I don't want people to, to see Nathan like, man, Nathan's doing great up there. There's nothing special about me. I fumble over big words. I'm not the best public speaker. 
but I want the presence and power of Christ in my life. I want his name to be glorified today through his word. And that is all that was special about these guys. So these were normal men living the normal rhythm of the Christian life that Christ gave them as we see over time. So let's look at the process. What did Jesus do with these men? We're going to look at the statement Jesus made when he called them and break it down. So the first thing we see is a disciple follows Jesus. We see at the very beginning these three words that Jesus says to them, come follow me. It is a personal call to himself. Jesus didn't say, hey, come follow the temple in Jerusalem or or, come follow Infinity Church or or, come follow whatever. He said, come follow me. It was a personal call to spend time with him. An interesting fact is Jesus Christ is the first rabbi in human history to go after his disciples. Normally the way it worked is view it as like a PhD program. Once they reached a certain point in their education, these young men would go out, seek a famous rabbi, and ask them, can I follow you? They would seek out the rabbi and ask that. And the rabbi would put them through all this different training, and if they finally passed, they would say, yes, you can follow me. So Jesus is the first rabbi in human history to go after his own disciples and not vice versa. Praise the Lord, Jesus still does that today. I don't know about you, I wasn't seeking out Jesus myself. Jesus sought me out. Jesus loved me enough to come to earth to seek me out and save me. So Jesus seeks us out today. So a disciple follows Jesus, spends time with Jesus, um, is in his word. But more than that, a disciple is formed by Jesus. He said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Interesting thing that um, if you look at the word make in Greek, it is the same word for birth. It's like new life. It is, I will make you into this, into a new creation. He said, I will form you into this. I'm going to take a weight off your shoulders today. Then I might put a different weight on your shoulders. First one is, you can be relieved that there is nothing you can do to make yourself into the person Christ has called you to be. But the other weight is you can put yourself in the path of Christ, in the right environment for Christ to change you. I love the story of Zacchaeus. You know the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. I'm not going to sing the whole song. You don't want me to sing it. But no, it's a scene where Jesus is coming down the road into town, and you see Zacchaeus, who wanted to see Christ so bad that he climbed up into the sycamore tree. He put himself in the way of Christ, and Jesus looked at him and said, Zacchaeus, come down. I am dining at your house today. So that kind of is the mental idea that I have of putting yourself in the right environment for Christ to form you, for Christ to change you. Our environment for spiritual growth is something that is very important to the life of a Christian. Um, So have you all ever seen the movie Karate Kid? Yes. Anyone? So anytime he goes to his mentor, Mr. Miyagi, whenever he goes to his shop, what's Mr. Miyagi doing? What's he taking care of? Yeah, a bonsai tree, right? I have a picture of a bonsai tree to throw up here. So this is a bonsai tree. What's really interesting 
about a bonsai tree is it has the exact same DNA of a normal size or a large tree that we see. It has the, the leaves, it has the roots, it has the bark, it has everything. The only thing constraining the bonsai tree to stay its size is the pot that it's in. If you simply take this very tiny tree out of that pot and put it in a bigger pot, it turns into this. Much bigger tree. The environment the tree is in changes the growth of the tree. Same with us as Christians. The environment we are in determines the growth of us, the speed of our growth. Now, Christ has promised that he will change us into Christ's likeness. But it's on us to put ourselves in that path. This is why I believe that community is so important for the Christian. Do you all agree with me that community is important? The Christian life cannot be lived by itself. Community is crucial. That's why uh, small groups are crucial. We have Bible studies here at our church. Being in community with other Christians, you hear the two best words that you can ever hear as a Christian. You too? <laughs> if you're struggling with anything in life and, and Satan tries to trick you saying, man, you are terrible. I cannot believe that you're going through this. You are the only one in history to ever deal with this. And you're in community and you hear someone else say, you too? I thought I was the only one. It's the most amazing thing you can hear. See, Christianity was, we were never meant as Christians to live alone. We were always meant to be in community together. We were always meant to push each other along and spur each other into Christ-likeness. We're called to push each other along to practice spiritual disciplines. I don't know about you, but if I was alone and had no one pushing me, I would probably not have a habit of reading God's Word every day. Praise the Lord for my amazing wife who pushes me to do that. But, and I have brothers and sisters in Christ that push me to do that as well. Um, but prayer, fasting, oh man, we don't talk about fasting enough, do we? Um, all these spiritual disciplines, uh, memorizing Scripture, everything, it's so hard to do it alone. But if you do it together with other believers, it is incredible what the Lord can do for you. So Jesus forms us, and we can put ourselves in the right environment. Let me take a, a moment here to say, if you are here today and you're just visiting with us, great, incredible. If you just come to our service, awesome. I'm so glad you're here. But we have Bible studies. We have small groups. We have opportunities for you to get plugged into community. We have opportunities for you to know others and be known by others. And I don't know about you, but I want to be known by others and to know others. If that's something that you're interested in joining, we would love to talk to you more about that because we believe that community is important. So a disciple follows Jesus. A disciple is formed by Jesus. And a disciple focuses on others. We see he says, come follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, that's always an interesting line. He's talking to these fishermen, and he says, I will make you fishers of men. What he means is he, he will send them out to catch these men, as we read in earlier in 1 Peter, out of darkness into his marvelous light. He was going to use these normal men to do that. Now, sometimes we think that this is only pointing to evangelism. This is only pointing to, I'm going to share my faith with them and bring them to church. But it is that, but it's more than that. We know it's more than that because what Jesus 
teaches in one of his last words in the Great Commission. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He starts by saying, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the next part, he says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. I don't know about you, but I can't teach all that Jesus taught in God's word in a day, in one conversation. No, I can't do that. The point is, he, it's more than just sharing our faith with people. It's sharing our life with people. We have gotten good at teaching others to share their faith, but we have failed to teach them to share their life. And that's on us as the church. We have failed to teach people to share their life. We live in a world of big privacy fences and small dinner tables. That is a reality. The reason I talk about dinner tables is that is a theme we see all throughout Scripture. One of my favorite uh, pictures of hospitality is in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's, it's the uh, story of David and Mephibosheth. Say Mephibosheth. There you go. That was good. That was good. Mephibosheth was uh, the grandson of King Saul. It was Jonathan's son. And if you know anything about David and Saul and their family's history, you know that David and Jonathan were best friends, but King Saul hated and persecuted and tried to kill David over and over and over again. King David had no reason to bless Saul's family but he wanted to honor his friend Jonathan. And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, it says this, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there is a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Michar, the son of Emiel, at Lo-Debar. I love that Hebrew word, Lo-Debar. If you translate that, it means no thing. It means nothing. He's from the area of nothing. So... Fun fact for you, low to bar, nothing. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekar, the son of Amiel, to Lodabar, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce and your master's grandson may have bread to eat, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. What a picture of kindness. David did not owe anything to anyone of Saul's family, but he wanted to show kindness. And how did he show that kindness? He said, you will always dine 
at my table. The reason I love this story is this is exactly what God has done for us. We were God's enemies, but he loved us so much he sent Christ to save us, to die, to pay the punishment for our sins. And he didn't just say, you're forgiven, go on and and do your thing. No, he took it a step further. He adopted us as sons and daughters. And one of the most beautiful pictures in Scripture is in Revelation chapter 19. We see the picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the moment when Christ and His church are finally reunited forever. And it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says, Blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We as Christians have been shown this kindness. We have been invited to the table of God. We are part of His family. So all that to say, that kindness has been shown to us. We show that to others. A disciple is focused on others. I heard a pastor say, the gospel came to you because it was on its way to someone else. Now, if that doesn't convict you, I don't know what does, because that gets me every time I hear that. It's not about you. Yes, you benefit from it. Yes, you are saved by grace. Praise the Lord. But the gospel came to you because it was on its way to someone else. Christians, we are called to invest our lives in other people. We are called to show radical hospitality to those who live around us, who we work with, who we may view as our enemies. I'm not talking about the Chip and Joanna Gaines vision of hospitality of just, yeah, I'm going to invite my friends over and host them. No, I'm talking about showing kindness to your enemies. We are called to focus on others and show radical hospitality because if we don't share our lives with people, they won't care about our faith. So a disciple follows Jesus. A disciple is formed by Jesus. A disciple focuses on focuses on others, and finally, a disciple forsakes everything. We see in that verse, what happened when Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men? So the disciples immediately followed him. We see James and John say, see you, dad. Good luck with the servants. We're gone. We're following Jesus. And just to kind of give you the weight of him saying this and why they immediately responded, I want to take you back to the first century um, just a little history. I already, already alluded to it earlier, but just the life of a Jewish boy. I've talked a little bit about it, but at age five, every Jewish kid would go to what was called Bat Sefer. It was That means the house of the book. And at this age, they would learn the first five books of the Bible. And by the time they finished, they had the first five books of the Bible memorized by age 10. I don't know what that says to you, but I do know this you can memorize scripture. (laughs) You can memorize scripture still. So by the time they were 10, they would have the first five books of the Bible memorized. That was the first school they would go to. Um, But after this, 80% couldn't make the cut. They they couldn't uh, knock out the memory requirements. They couldn't uh, pass the school. And then if they didn't make the cut, they went back on to take the family business as an apprentice. But if they could make the cut, they would go to what was called the Bat Talmud, which means the house of learning. This is from the ages of 10 to 15, and this is where they would learn the rest of the Old Testament, the books of history, they would learn the law, they would learn all this stuff about the Old Testament. This was kind of like the master's program for them. Um, If they were good enough, if they were smart enough, if they made it to age 15, they could go on to the final level, the PhD of their study, which was called the Bat Midrash, 
which is called the house of study. That scares me a little bit, the house of study. This is what I talked about earlier, where they would finally be able to go seek out a rabbi. They would, they would research the most famous rabbi they could. They're like, oh, that's the one I want. And they would go to this rabbi and they would say, can I come follow you? And the rabbi would then ask this kid, he would, he would ask himself if this kid was smart enough, if he had what it took, if he had the energy that was needed to, to continue this study. And he would ask him a bunch of questions. It was, it was like this oral exam he would give to this kid. And he would uh, ask him questions. And if, if the boy was smart enough, he would answer like any rabbi wanted with another question. Because that means he got it. And after this huge examination, they would finally hear the three greatest words any Jewish boy would want to hear. Those three words are, come follow me. That means the rabbi accepted them. But we see our disciples in this story fishing. So what do we know about them? We know at some point in their journey, they didn't make the cut. They weren't smart enough. They didn't have what it took to continue on the education. But Jesus said to them, you're good enough in my book. You mean something to me. You guys are a part of my team. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid in school, there was this moment at recess where you'd play football. And it, all would, it always would come down to the two best, most, most athletic kids, and they'd start picking teams. Have you ever been in that moment? It comes down to Johnny, Steve. Okay, we'll take Bill over here. All right, we'll take Ethan. And it comes down to the final two, and they say, guess we'll take Nathan. Come on, Nathan, you can be on our team. Yeah, that hurts, right? Being overpassed, being looked over. That's how I imagine these disciples feeling. But then Jesus looks at them. They were bypass overlooks. They were fishing with their dads. They were, you know, taking over the family business. And they hear this rabbi call from the shore those three words that they long to hear. Come follow me. Do you think you would be out of that boat like that? I would. But here's the truth of it all. Here's the truth of everything that we've, we've come to today with this moment. Jesus is still doing that. Jesus is calling you to come follow me. Jesus called these ordinary blue-collar men. and He changed the course of human history because of them. And he wants to do the same with us. That's what I want you to get. You may not be the most theologically educated person in the room. You may not um, be good with words like me. You may not be good with, with reading big words. Uh, you may not even be your Sunday school teacher, your Bible study leader. But Jesus is still calling you, and he still wants to use you to change Fountain Inn, to change Simpsonville, to change this area, to change the world. The reason... I'm able to stand up here today is not due to theological education. It's not due to me learning how to study and preach the Word. That, that is 
an after effect of the reason, but that's not the reason. The reason I'm able to stand up here and do this is because my life was changed by ordinary, obedient men and women who poured their life into me as a teenager. I came to Christ when I was in ninth grade. That was due to people that I can think of who, uh, one was an insurance salesman, one was a farmer, one uh, raised chickens for Chick-fil-A. That was fun. One was a, a contractor. A lot of these guys who had these hardworking jobs and they still invested their lives into me. Because of that, God changed. God used them to help change my life and put me on the path that I am. Don't ever count yourself out. If you are a Christian in this room, you may view yourself as ordinary. You may view yourself ex of it as extraordinary. If that's the case. We might need to talk a little bit. But you might view yourself as ordinary, but don't count yourself out. Jesus sought you out. He offered you those amazing words of come follow me. Don't ignore him. Live in obedience to Jesus today. He might be calling you for the first time, come and follow me. And that might mean repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ. That step of obedience. He may be calling you to come back and live in obedience to him because you haven't in a while. He, he may be calling you to come follow him and be part of his church, the family of God. What is your next step of obedience in following Jesus? Whatever specifics, whatever the specifics of your call, I know one thing's for certain. is that Jesus is telling you and me to come follow him. Will you obey him today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that while there is nothing special about us, you've called us to follow you and and you said that you will form us into the men and women that you want us to be. And that you would use us to change the world. We thank you for this call to be a disciple who makes disciples. That's just a grace that we could not fathom, that we do not deserve. But you have called us to do this. And ultimately, You've called us to do this, but you've done more than that. Is, is While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you sent your son to die for us. That's not anything we earned. It was by grace alone, and we thank you for that grace. Because of the grace you showed us, help us live in obedience to you every day and to live the normal Christian life that you've called us to live, to invest our lives in people and to make disciples wherever we are. Lord, we need you. We cannot do it ourselves. But go with us. Let your power and your presence dictate our life and guide us every day of our lives. In Christ's name.